are listening to a Dulahan Productions podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Born on May 16, 1861, was a man who many believed to be the first serial killer in American history. He was known to commit various fraud schemes to make money, but it is also believed that he could be responsible for up to 200 murders in the late 1800s in his castle he constructed in Chicago. His name is Henry H. Holmes, or as he famously will be known as H.H. H. Holmes. And today, we will be looking at his life and crimes he committed. This is Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. I am your host. Hunter Strickland, and I'm joined with me as always by my co-host, Jason Sparks. How you doing, Jason? I'm doing very well. How are you today, Hunter? I'm doing pretty good, man. Just ready to talk about Henry Holmes. Uh, just, I know I've always been fascinated by this case because, like I said, uh, it's believed he's the first serial killer ever in America, and he's obviously a pretty big inspiration. Uh, Jason, are you, are you a big fan of American Horror Story? I am. Okay, because I, I know he pops up in, I think it's Hotel, not himself, but there's a character in that show that is inspired by him, and that kind of drove my fascination with learning the real-life story. So that's why I was thinking that we could delve a little bit into his backstory and just look at the crimes he committed. Absolutely, and there's so many books written about the the mind and madness and also the mystery behind H.H. H. Holmes. Oh, it's, it's outrageous. During my research, I just found so many different articles, news reports, and like you said, books, stories, even movies, TV shows that are about him. I mean, there's outrageous claims about him. Like I said, it's believed he could possibly killed up 200 people. We'll look into that and we'll, we can give our own conclusions at the end, but just shows you the mystery and the legend that surrounds this man is pretty, pretty big. Absolutely. Uh, like I said, he was born in 1861. He was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. His real name was actually Herman Webster Muggett. His parents were Levi and Theodate Muggett, and he was the uh, third of four children they had. He had two brothers and a sister. It is alleged that he would actually, in his childhood, trap animals and perform surgery on him because he had a fascination with finding out what their insides looked like. There's also a theory that he even killed one of his classmates growing up. And he did the same thing to see what um, the inside of the human body looks like. And that's what made him start to develop a fascination with medicine at a very early age. So you can already see there, we talked about many times, the McDonald triad. And one of those things is cruelty to animals. And we can see right there, not only is he showing cruelty to animals, he's actually trying to perform experiments on them. Yeah, and with an individual who is dating so far back into history and everything, to be able to have credence on a lot of the backstory is a little bit more difficult. And Mm -hmm. even the the bedwetting would not be appropriately accounted for if he was doing it. And the arson maybe, but also the cruelty to animals, which is already being shown. Mm-hmm. And again, the allegation of him killing a young classmate, you know, just feeding his fascination of of medicine, of anatomy, and also potentially, you know, showing that lack of empathy. 
Yes, exactly. And I'm glad you actually brought that up. With it being so far back, because, I mean, we're talking 1800s, 1860s, evidence and information back then can be misconstrued and also just... It's very hard to gather evidence from that time period because it has been, I mean, this is 160 years ago. It's uh, hard to tell what is true and what is fiction, but this is the case with even serial killers within the past 50 years. But if any of this is true, it just shows you at least where all this chaos in their life at least started, potentially. After that, he actually did graduate from high school at the age of 16. He would later marry the year the next year to Clara Levering. They would end up producing a son in this union whose name was Robert. After graduating high school, um, Muggett actually attended the University of, Ver- of Vermont at 18, but he was very unhappy there and soon dropped, off, dropped out from that school. He would later enroll at the University of Michigan in their medical department. It was during his time at Michigan is when he started developing his fraud schemes that he would start doing throughout the rest of his life. He started out there at Michigan by stealing cadavers and also grave robbing during that time. And he would sell the bodies off or use them for insurance fraud. So you can already see there he's starting to develop a little bit of a very different, like, I'm trying to think of the best word to say. Like, it's he's just coming trying to figure out money um, ways to make money. And he's doing it in a very unconventional way, I would say. Yeah, he's letting his greed fill the the fuel to the fire and, and going ahead and showing more of that lack of empathy, you know, that these are bodies, this was someone's life that, you know, he has, you know, the, the remnants of and still is showing just no sympathy towards it, you know, is willing to commit these heinous acts already just for the sake of money. Oh, exactly. And especially since he's showing no respect for these people's like their bodies and he's just taking them and using them for his own personal game, having no regard, not for just the bodies, but also the families of these people, just so that way, that way he can make a quick buck. It just already starts to show you that this is all going to go ahead and start off on the wrong foot. Exactly. Um, It's also believed though, that his marriage to uh, Clara was not very well with neighbors reporting that uh, Muggett was very violent to her throughout their first uh, throughout their marriage and it ended up resulting in her moving to New Hampshire to get away from him with him never actually being able to talk to his son after that once she left for New Hampshire with their child he never did see him again it was also rumored around this time that he killed a boy that was seen with him in New York who disappeared shortly afterwards but he claimed that the boy did go home back to Michigan again there's no evidence suggesting that he did kill this young boy, but there's also no evidence showing that the boy ever did resurface. He just is all going off of Holmes' word that he actually did move back home. After this time in New York, he did move to Philadelphia. He eventually got a job at a drugstore. It was also there that another young boy was died while he was working there after taking medication that he purchased from the store. Uh, Muggett just denied all accountability, all uh, involvement with that crime as well while Holmes was still legally married to Clara he did end up marrying a woman named Martra Belknip in 1886 though this marriage did not last long uh, very long as well it was also in 1886 that Holmes would move to Chicago after he passed his medical exams and this is actually the first recorded time that he took the name of Dr. Henry H. Holmes Jason I just wanted to stop right there and 
see what your thoughts are. What do you? Why do you think he decided to change his name at this time? Yeah, I feel that his previous name it already has so much notoriety with it, and he's wanting to essentially disassociate to potentially build up this new identity, this fresh start, if you will. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense, and I was wondering that too. Actually, when I was giving making these notes. I always wonder why people would go by a different name unless it is for that type of reason. And that would make a lot of sense. I always wonder if that was maybe a potential identity he's stolen, maybe from a cadaver he had collected and used for insurance fraud. He saw that name, liked the name and decided that whenever he could start a new life somewhere else that he decided to come up with that name. Yeah, I definitely think that's a possibility. And it's interesting that he is remembered for this fabricated name, not his birth name. Oh, yeah, that's, I guess, just because that's when the bulk of his crimes probably was happening was when he was going by that name. That would make more sense because, like I said, the murders that were connected to them as time, these were honestly could be seen as more fabrications than anything just because of there's a massive lack of evidence seems like all these two murders at least were linked to him after he gets arrested for his crimes here in Chicago and other parts in the United States. That's the only thing. That's why I could see him being more associated with HH Holmes rather than Herman Muggett. Yeah. And I think that's a fair point for sure. Yes. Um, it's actually that pharmacy that he worked at while he was in Chicago. It belonged to a woman named Elizabeth Holton. It was on the corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street. It is believed that H.H. Uh, H. Holmes actually killed Elizabeth, telling people that she moved to Chicago. But this is not confirmed because her body has not been discovered. And there is no record of her actually ever moving to California. So it's just kind of an open air assumption that he probably did kill her but there we just don't have the evidence to prove it hmm. holmes then had the his famous murder castle which will become very prominent in the, uh, the forthcoming years it was a three-story building filled with secret passages trap doors soundproof rooms among other horrors as he had that this constructed right across the street from the pharmacy that he now actually owns because he got it from Elizabeth since she moved to California. And Jason, I know you probably heard of this murder castle, haven't you? I have. And some of the previous literature and media that I've read up or listened to talk on the murder castle of being, you know, a way to hide items, hide potential bodies, you know, to potentially get the drop on people that are within the murder castle. But there are also some theories that I had recently read up on that the murder castle, the reason he had all these weird passageways was potentially linked to the fact that it's possible that H.H. Holmes had schizophrenia and that in his schizophrenic episodes, he was, you know, trying to essentially escape, you know, trying to find a way out and that he thought if he had these secret passageways that he could, you know, be free of, you know, these these apparitions that he was potentially seeing. That's a pretty good point. I'm not going to lie. I never saw that in my research, but that makes a lot of sense. I know there is one instance, which I'll get into later, where he would use those secret passages for other means with his fraud schemes. But that's actually a pretty good point. Um, and I'm glad you brought this up because it's also believed that he had shoots in, the, in this hotel because he would use those to dispose of the dead bodies that he allegedly 
claimed or killed mm-hmm. with people that stayed there. So that's actually a pretty interesting perspective because I've actually never heard of that before. So yeah, that was a, a recent discovery I had made, and it, it it makes sense to an extent because not always, but often enough, serial killers do have some sort of mental illness, and schizophrenia is definitely one of the ones that rears its head whenever we uh, do these investigations or have these discussions. Yeah, that's a very good point because it seems like the ones that we have done so far, they at least have had episodes of it, if not have been diagnosed with it. So that's a very common one. It seems to have, like you said, that was weird as ugly head mm-hmm. in most of these people that we have investigated. Anyway, so get back on track here. Uh, he did build that hotel and he was constructing it. And he actually used that hotel during, in 1893, there was a world's Columbian exposition, which was essentially like a world's fair that took place in Chicago and is during this time that people believe that he used his hotel as an opportunity to claim potential victims as there was many people from various parts of not only the United States, but various parts of the world that would come to this festival and they would stay at his uh, hotel and is believed that this is where he started his hunting ground. It was interesting note, Jason too. I just want to bring it up. They, came up with this World uh, Columbia Exposition because it actually was to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus coming to the New World, which, I mean, it, it's not, it's 1492 when it came, but the celebration is in 1893. Close enough, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not good years. math, I guess. You know. Yeah, 401 years, not too bad. It probably it, it could have been a culmination of different things. Maybe was, the planning took so long that they had to push it back a year, and who knows? It's who knows what it could have been, but that's neither here nor there. But another interesting note is this was the first time the Ferris wheel actually made its debut. Yeah, it's interesting to think back, you know, of the, the history of the fair and all that it signified. And then there, of course, throughout a lot of history, there are these little black ink spots that kind of taint the picture of what this was supposed to be. And in this instance, it's H.H. H. Holmes. Yeah, and that, I think that's what is remember mostly about this fair and nowadays is is synonymous with H.H. Holmes. Fortunately, Mm -hmm. I remember for being this huge, grand, essentially festival, just to commemorate everything that has happened within the past 400 years since that point, it's now been overshadowed by this legend that has been H.H. Holmes. Mm -hmm. Another thing, Jason, that I actually mentioned just a little bit ago that came to the part with his secret rooms that he had within his hotel is believed that a part of his frauds that he would commit that he would actually purchase furniture for his hotel on credit and to hide it from his creditors he would keep it in these secret rooms and take concrete or concrete slabs and cover the doors with them so that that way his creditors could never find where his furniture was yeah, so it's interesting, you know, he's, as we've discussed, it's not only bodies that he's using these out passageways and shoots to kind of uh, hide or dispose of, but also going back to that greed that he has, that he's using it, you know, for, for material possession. And that's what I'm thinking too, and it's just interesting. It's, it, it seems like he's a just a massive fraudster, but he's looking to exploit people in any way, shape, or form. And 
unfortunately that also leads to him killing people as well because it seems like he has a serious lack of remorse within himself that he doesn't care what he does to other people as long as he gained from it like you said his greed overtakes him in uh, most of his uh, situations in his life yeah it seems in his eyes that you know killing is just a means to an end for him that it's just embellishing his own wealth yeah it's kind of like tying up a loose end almost because it it seems like these people are either in his way or he just has no use of them Mm. um is uh, the victims that he is believed to have killed during this time with the World Ex- uh, Columbia Exposition were mostly women, and he would lure them to his hotel where he would eventually murder them. But it's not truly known how many victims he's actually murdered there. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, it's believed that it could be anywhere up to 200 people. They don't, they truly don't know because it's alleged that he would actually burn the bodies in the cellar at the bottom of this hotel to hide the evidence. So we probably will never know how, what his true body count is, but it could be up there very high. We just don't know. Yeah. And to just kind of briefly touch on the grease gruesomeness of burning bodies, you actually have to get a fire or flame up to a very high burning point to actually burn bone. So it's, it's, Incredibly, I feel is, is a stretch for me to think that he had a kill count of around 200 just because of that fact. And I think I believe or I'm in that camp with you as well. And there's another man whose name is Adam Seltzer. He is a tour guide and author who would probably agree with us as well because he attributes Holmes's true number to being nine people, actually. Mm-hmm. So we'll go ahead and delve in that, who he believes the nine victims of H.H. Holmes actually were. We'll start first with a woman named Julia Connor and her daughter, Pearl. It is believed that Holmes had actually murdered them in 1891. Julia was a woman that Holmes was actually having having an affair with, and she would actually help out in his uh, pharmacy and other various and you can't see me, but quotation marks, business schemes, mm-hmm. essentially just fraud, insurance fraud is what he was committing. And the reason why uh, that they attribute this to being his first murders is because they disappeared sometime around Christmas in 1891. But Holmes never did confirm if he did kill them or not. But the there's certain evidence. It's kind of hard to tell what it is just because, I mean, we're again, we're talking 1891. More of the evidence is pointing towards that Holmes is the one who did murder them. And with the potential theory being that he tried to perform an abortion on Julia, who they believe is was pregnant with his child, but the abortion it went bad and it actually killed her. The claim of the abortion having gone bad would more than likely be false. I think it goes back to, at this point, H.H. Holmes sees her as being in his way and so is performing malpractice intentionally to get her out of the picture in essence. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Maybe he had no use for her anymore, and she just, like you said, she's just in the way, so he might as well get rid of her. Unfortunately, though, that also meant getting rid of her daughter as well. So this is an innocent bystander in all of this, and he just decided that it was better just get rid of both of them as well on top of that. So it's just a very unfortunate circumstance. 
Yeah, it goes back to in his eyes, he just sees the child as being a loose end, you know, has no empathy, no regard for human life. And so we'll just dispose of it. That makes sense. Uh, his next three victims were actually believed to be two sisters whose name were Minnie and Anna Williams, as well as a woman named Emilian uh, Chagrin. My bad. Emilian um, began working at uh, Holmes's pharmacy in May of 1892. It's also believed that they had an affair as well, as Holmes was still married to uh, Mitra at the same time. He, he, she also got pregnant with his child as well, and the same situation is believed to happen as with Julia, that a failed abortion is what led to her untimely demise as well. Though, I think, Jason, as you said before, I don't know if I necessarily buy that. Yeah, I mean, malpractice does happen, right? And it still happens to this day. But, you know, I feel like in this instance, it's a fool me once, fool me twice type of situation. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and I well, I should have mentioned too. It's also believed that Holmes was the one who performed the abortion on the two women. So, the malpractice part of it is probably makes more sense because he wasn't a trained doctor. He just went to medical school and was a pharmacist. He wasn't someone who was trained in delivering a child. Mm. And if it was the that truly was the case, that makes sense. But it still doesn't cover the fact that he would cover up these what he was doing and it's still illegal to perform for him to perform an abortion. So at the same time, he still is responsible. Granted, this could be another situation just like with Julia. She could have been another accomplice in his schemes. Cause I mean, this was five months after Julia and her daughter disappeared. It could have been just another woman that he had helping him with the schemes and he got tired of her and disposed of her the same way. Absolutely. And, more than likely he was very close with this woman and, you know, we was able to convince not only her, but the, the previous woman saying, you know, don't worry, I went to medical school. I know what I'm doing, you know, is a means to get them confident enough to allow him to perform this, not knowing that what the end result is going to be. And I, I think you're right. And I mean, it seems like he's a pretty, pretty good manipulator at this point in time because he is able to convince these women to, not only get involved with the schemes, but do whatever, whatever he asked of them. And like you said, he probably convinced that, Hey, I can do this. I'm trained. I've went to medical school. I, I can take care of this. And unfortunately it led to their demise. Absolutely. And it's very apparent that he's, as you stated, he's a silver tongue devil, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. He's definitely, I think he, it just seems like he's a manipulator and a pathological liar. But we can still just look at that before I just make that concrete. It's just, it, that's what it seems like up until this point. And I have to agree for sure. Yeah. It was also during this time, though, that he would become close friends with a associate of his named Benjamin Pitzel, who will become very important as we move later on, as he would become his partner in fraud schemes and something bad will happen that will be, be, lead to Holmes's downfall later on. But getting back to his other victims, specifically Minnie and Anna Williams, uh, Holmes got involved with Minnie after she moved to Chicago. She got a job at his hotel, and he even persuaded Minnie, who owned property in Fort Worth, Texas, to sign it over to an alias of his named Alexander Bond. He gets this done with the help of Benjamin, who I just mentioned, 
And the next month, they rent an apartment together, uh, Holmes and Minnie, in Lincoln Park. And that is when her sister, Annie, actually came to visit them. Now, this is in July of 1892. It is later known that the two women were to take a trip to, in Europe a few days later, but they were last seen on July 5th, 1893. It is still not known what happened to them at this point. And Jason, I just want to get your thoughts. What do you think happened? Yeah, more than likely he saw this as a good excuse, a good alibi of why these women are, uh, you know, missing in action or however you want to phrase it, um, as a, a way to get rid of them completely. Yeah, it makes sense. And I meant to bring it up too, but it is also believed that during this time that Annie would actually wrote a letter to the, uh, their uncle and she mentioned something about a man going with them on this Europe trip and Many people believe that this was referring to H.H. H. Holmes, but it was an alias that he was using at that time. So obviously it doesn't link necessarily back to him, but one would guess that it was him because him and Minnie were linked together and they were also living together in this apartment in Lincoln Park. So it would be pretty safe to assume that it's more than likely him who is the one linked to all this. Right, because he's already changed his name to H.H. H. Holmes. He already, we know without a, fa- a doubt that he has the alias Alexander Bond, and who's to say he doesn't have countless other aliases? Oh, yeah. he With all of his fraud schemes that he's committing, he's probably got numerous aliases that he's going off of, and he's probably not using the same one over and over again. He's probably not even using H.H. H. Holmes very often. That's just the one that's stuck with him. Right. Um, it was actually occurred in July 1894 that Holmes was forced to leave Chicago after a bunch of insurance companies that he was committing fraud grants finally started catching up to him, and he left town before they were able to finally get him arrested for these crimes. And bringing back up Benjamin Pitzel, this is essentially what led to his downfall, like I mentioned earlier, because this is what is believed to be his last victims was Benjamin and three of his kids. And this would end up rounding it up to about nine victims, which is why I think it's Adam Seltzer is that's what led him to believe that there it was nine victims as linked to H.H. H. Holmes. So what ended up happening, the story behind what happened with Benjamin Pitzel and H.H. H. Holmes, they both came up with a scheme, another insurance scheme. Holmes actually came up with this while he was in jail in 1894. He was going to swindle about $10,000 from an insurance company by putting life insurance on himself and he would fake his death. However, while he was in prison, uh, a cellmate of his told him that it wouldn't be so good to do it under himself, but he should do it under someone else, so that way it was easier for him to fake a death and claim the insurance money. And this was also around this time, this prison buddy that he knew uh, linked him to a lawyer whose name was Jephthah Howe, sorry for the pronunciation, was able to help him do, go along with this claim. So in order for him to get this claim, he had to get someone to help him out. And Jason, as I mentioned him, who do you think that was? Ben Pitzel. Oh, Ben Pitzel. And so they did that. They got that scheme going out. They faked his death. They actually set it up to where Benjamin's wife would get half of that $10,000. And then they then Holmes and the lawyer would uh, settle it out because obviously the lawyer would get his cut for helping out with this. Pitzel was to impersonate an inventor that is killed and disfigured by a lab explosion. 
with Holmes finding a cadaver that was to resemble Benjamin. However, Holmes had a different plan, and he decided that he would just rather kill Benjamin by using chloroform to knock him out, and then he would set him on fire. So instead of him getting a cadaver just to step in, he thought it was easier and probably a little bit less headache on himself to just go ahead and kill Benjamin instead. Yeah, I completely agree with the assumption. You know, it's it's easier instead of finding a cadaver that resembles Ben, which would probably take, you know, a lot of either grave robbing or uh, fraud that he would have to get into a hospital or, or a coroner's office, what have you. And what easier way than to have a body that resembles somebody than that person's body itself. And as you said, it'd, it'd be a lot faster in someone who is initially greedy, you know, wants it as fast as possible. And so he's not going to go through all these hoops, go to this extent to pull off this scheme when you can pull it off off the get go. And that would make a lot of sense, too. And it also seems that he's not going to hold up his end of the bargain by giving half of that money to benjamin's wife and so he just decides that one i'm gonna off this guy who has been my partner but has been taking half the money that one his like you said his greed's overtaking him he's going to just off him get rid of him and just keep the money and you'll see what he does to benjamin's wife here in just a moment but it's just again just plays into his pathological liar status and him being a manipulator he obviously does this to benjamin convincing this guy obviously they've been doing Many various different schemes together, and Benjamin probably thinks it's just another one of them, but Holmes decides, now this time I'm going to do this on my own, and you're just going to be on the other side of it, unfortunately. Yeah, so again, it goes back to him being such a silver-tongued devil that Ben more than likely had a lot of confidence in H.H. Holmes, and you know, he believed that he was going to get his cut of the bargain. You know, everything was going to work out all right, but... At the end of the day, he didn't know the the tethered past of H.H. H. Holmes to its fullest extent and the, the madness that was going on with this man, inside this man's mind. Oh, no, without a doubt, he probably didn't know that. And who knows? H.H. H. Holmes probably told him his name was H.H. H. Holmes. Who knows what else he told him, whether it was a lie or whatever fabrication came up with. He probably didn't truly know this guy who for who he really was. No one probably truly knew who he was. And... And Ben probably believed that, oh, I can trust this guy. We've done many before, but this time it just didn't turn out that way. Yeah, he paid the price on that one. Oh, yes, he definitely did. Um, Holmes did end up collecting the insurance money, and he even convinced Benjamin's wife to have three of their children, whose names were Alice, Nellie, and Howard, to go into custody with them, and he would take care of them. And I just want to stop there and just... It's pretty amazing if someone is not amazing. When I say amazing, I don't mean in the good way amazing, but I guess just astonishing that he is able to convince um, Benjamin's wife to allow him to take three of their children and have custody of them. That just kind of blows my mind that he is able to pull that off. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that Ben's wife had that much interaction with H.H. H. Holmes. I'm sure she had heard his name several times, but to have enough confidence in this man to give, uh, oh, who would be a complete stranger, three of her kids, and 
unknowingly at this point giving her three kids to the man who killed her husband. Oh, yeah. And, well, I'll go ahead and say this. She actually doesn't know that Holmes killed her husband. He actually made claims to her that he was hiding in London, and maybe that's why he was able to convince her to allow three of their children to come with them because maybe he thought he told her that that was the safest thing to let him have them since he knows the exact whereabouts of where Benjamin was, according to him. Maybe that's how he was able to do it. I don't know. But as we know, he killed, he did kill him. He was not hiding in London, but she does not know this. So that's the only thing I can think of why he was able to do this and convince her to have these three children with him. Yeah, and it's possible that he came up with this idea telling her that, hey, potentially there's going to be investigators or some members of these insurance companies coming forth and wanting to discuss, you know, your husband's alleged death at this point. And what better of a way, you know, not to frighten your children, but to let me take them into my care for a little while, you know, let kind of the, the water settle back out and I'll bring them back to you. So you can kind of put up this facade, this front of being, you know, a, a, a grief stricken widow whose husband just passed away and nobody will be the wiser. That, that actually makes sense too. Who honestly knows why he did that to her and who knows why she ended up giving her children to him. He probably did come up with something obviously pretty good to allow these three children to come with him. It's kind of hard to tell what he did. It's just, it's just kind of mind blowing. But what he would actually do with these children is he would, they would travel along the Northern United States and even into Canada with Mrs. Pitzel actually following them, but she was never too close to be with her children. And this was just Holmes' kind of way of like keeping her within a distance, but also not too close with the children. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned that he actually took the three children up into Canada. It is actually while they were in Toronto that Holmes would kill Alice and Nellie. What he did is he actually locked them into a trunk, drilled a tiny hole into it, no, my bad, not a tiny hole, but a hole big enough to put a hose into it. He connected a gas line to that hose, basically suffocating the two girls within that locked trunk. And I just want Jason, that's pretty horrific, for me to say the least. Yeah, I don't know if this is just him developing so much farther into his own madness that he would do such a a cruel act against these children or if he thought maybe and within his own mind that this would be the most humane way i'm I'm not sure why he would go to this extent to kill these two girls it it is pretty alarming and does raise a lot of questions the only the thing i always come back to and just it seems like according to his personality is Maybe he got tired of trying to keep up with the kids or they their usefulness came to an end. So he decided that they probably knew too much and he would dispose of them rather than let them go back to the mother and potentially rat him out and get him caught. That's the only thing I can think of why he would do that. Does Definitely does not justify why he did that. But and kind of put on my criminal minds hat right here. That's not, like trying to get into what a killer's head. That's the only thing that would make sense to me why he would do that. Yeah, again, just going back to two more loose ends that have been tightened up. Mm-hmm, exactly. It is also believed that um, sometime after this, Howard, which was the boy that he took with him, 
he killed him by giving him multiple doses of drugs after the boy had died from the, from this overdose he cut up his body and burned it his bits and teeth were actually later discovered at the home Holmes was renting out in Indianapolis after he came back from Canada. The bodies of the two girls were later discovered in 1895 after Holmes was arrested. They were discovered by a detective named Frank Geyer. He would finally, like I said, get arrested in November 17, uh, November 17th, 1894 in Boston after, get this Jason, suspected of horse swindling in texas so that's a that's a pretty big jump for someone coming from the the northern part of the united states down to texas to commit horse swindling oh i know and that's i'm not gonna lie to that's what made researching on him kind of a little bit difficult because it seems like he is jumping back and forth potentially who knows how often he may only be staying in a, a certain location for a few months and then moving and just to kind of keep people off his trail. That's the only thing that makes sense. Because, I mean, we went from Toronto, where he killed the two young women, then to Indianapolis, which is where uh, Howard's remains were found. And then now he's in Texas. So he's, and then he got arrested in Boston. So he is jumping in, all across the United States. He is not settling down in one spot. When Holmes was initially arrested, the police actually thought that they what they who they arrested was just an elaborate froster, but as evidence and investigators started coming forth with evidence that they had against this man, it became pretty clear that he was linked to multiple murders. The one that stood out the most to investigators was that of Benjamin Pitzel. Holmes would later be charged with the murder of Benjamin and tried in Philadelphia. And this is the only murder he actually was tried for. And he would be found guilty of it on September 12, 1895. And he received the death penalty. And before we begin, I just wanted to bring up how I thought it was pretty interesting that this man who is pretty famous, pretty well known, thought to be the first serial killer ever, is only tried for one murder. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that goes back to the fact of how difficult investigations were at this point because there there is no forensics evidence you know it's it's a lot of word of mouth or some sort of item that would be able to point back to this specific individual but it becomes increasingly difficult in this time frame just because of how long it takes for communication to reach you know the the necessarily individuals and just the complete lack of evidence and the complete lack of documentation at the time too. So, I mean, there probably was a lot more details that have just been lost to history that we will never know about the investigation of H.H. H. Holmes. All I can say is I would hate to have been a police investigator at that time because, like you said, forensics was involved. You didn't have fingerprint analysis. It was probably insanely hard to gather evidence to pin stuff on an individual that you believe to be someone who committed these crimes because – Seems like back then, and then again, I'm not a forensic expert. I'm not expert when it comes to evidence or anything. But it seems like in that time, you really needed eyewitnesses or stuff being left behind that you can connect really to an individual to, in order to uh, charge that person with that crime. You don't have someone, you can't analyze a fingerprint back then. You don't have any way of doing that. So it was probably very difficult for them to do anything else other than charge him with this murder. 
Absolutely. And, and how much of this investigation was just connecting the dots, you know? Yes. And it's probably a lot of connecting the dots, too. It was probably even harder for them just to pin him on this murder alone. Hmm. Uh, it was after his, this conviction that Holmes would start making a bunch of different claims. A lot of them were contradictory to everything he said before. He made one claim at one point that he killed 27 people. He would later backtrack this claim and, and say that he was innocent of any crimes. And he even made a claim before he died that he was possessed by the devil. So, again, this is why I came to my conclusion that I think he's a pathological liar. And I think this kind of shows why I think that because he's just he can't keep even straight with his own story. He's backtracking himself, making up false numbers, even saying he's innocent. And now he's saying he was possessed by the devil. So that's well, obviously that's why I think he's you can't trust trust anything he says. Absolutely. And it'd be curious, you know, if we were able to go back in time and actually have a appropriate mental exam uh, performed on H.H. Holmes if we were able to discover if he did have, say, schizophrenia or multi-personality disorder or what have you, just because of, again, going back to he's a pathological liar, he created this very elaborate murder castle that has been theorized for multiple different reasons of why he did so. And then also the claim of he was possessed by the devil, it makes you wonder, is it just because he's a pathological liar or is there something else going on yeah that that would be very interesting to see because obviously with a lot of the people we'll be looking at later on a lot of them at least we can say they have been diagnosed with some personality disorders because a lot of these individuals actually got tested when they were younger or they got tested after they would get arrested for their crimes so we know what uh disability uh, disorders they had within themselves with his case obviously it was hard enough for mental disorders to be diagnosed back in the 50s 1800s it's almost non-existent so we have no idea what potentially was going on inside this guy's head it would actually occur on may 7 1896 that holmes would be hung for his crimes he was hung at a prison in philadelphia he even made the request after his death that his body be buried 10 feet below in, cement fill, in a cement-filled coffin out of fear his body would be the victim of grave robbing. So he, just kind of, he was kind of hoping karma wouldn't come back to bite him, that his body would be subjugated to grave robbing, which is something that he did earlier on in his life. Yeah, and I feel like a little bit that goes back to some narcissism that he's you know essentially asking for peaceful rest even though he didn't give that to so many other bodies yeah that's what I'm, he probably didn't show any remorse obviously with what his crimes were but he just didn't want anybody to do it to him and it seems like though with him not wanting his body to be robbed from the grave like he had done to so many people it kind of seems like he has a little bit of a narcissistic personality right there because he wants to be able to do whatever he wants to with these bodies that he dug up or took from the labs at his university and do what he wanted with them, but he didn't want anybody to do anything to his. Absolutely, and I agree, you know, 100% that more than likely H.H. H. Holmes is a narcissist. Yeah, it kind of seems like everything that he does points towards that. Uh, before we wrap up, though, I wanted to bring up an interesting note, though. There was a rumor that actually circulated after Holmes had been been executed that 
he actually never was executed. He escaped it before he ever was taken to have that done before. And the rumors were actually so persistent that in 2017, so five years ago from today, that descendants of him had his body exhumed to confirm that he was indeed executed on the date they said that he never escaped from that penalty. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I have to imagine that's difficult for his ancestors that are alive today. Because for the most part, I have to imagine that they want to kind of disassociate themselves with his history. You know, his history is not theirs. But the the rumors and just all this... You, these rumors that are facing uh, this family and th that they just can't get away from it. So they're saying, hey, you know, we technically have the authority to do so. We will dig up the body and we will prove once and for all that, yes, he was executed on this date and that, you know, his his body is exactly where they said it was. Exactly. And it seems like it could possibly be a peace of mind for them knowing that, no, he didn't escape the justice that was deserved upon him he did in fact what happened to him is what happened to him and like you said it's it's heartbreak it's unfortunate for that family because they are associated with him like sins of your father it's you're not the one who's guilty of it that person's guilty of it but you're still going to be associated with them and it's going to quite honestly haunt you for the rest of your life so it's pretty unfortunate for them that all the way up to within this his crimes happen was that 130 years ago when, when he died and it's still haunting this family to this day. So it's gotta be unfortunate for them to have to deal with that. Absolutely. So, well, Jason, that's about all I got on Henry H. Holmes. I uh, just want to get your final thoughts on it. I'll kind of chime in, then we'll close up the episode. Yeah, I think we've touched on a lot of it, but uh, just kind of my final points would be that H.H. H. Holmes is a disorganized killer that yes he is highly intelligent you know he is doing a lot of different methodical schemes but that doesn't add credence to him being organized i believe that he's disorganized because he never established a modus operandi he was frantic and fueled by his own greed and as i stated he's still very educated but he gets sloppy and probably thought that he was invincible again diving back into my belief that H.H. H. Holmes was a narcissist. And it does make it seem like he is very disorganized. It just seems like his first priority was to commit these schemes to make money. His second priority was to tie up the loose ends, like we mentioned many times. All these people that seems like that he is accused of murdering and quite possibly did murder, they were just, it was done because they were in the way or potentially could have got him caught. Like you said, he probably felt invincible that he wasn't going to get caught, but he had to ensure that by getting rid of the people who knew him the best, if anybody truly knew him at all, the people that knew him the best and could potentially get him caught. I don't know. It's a very fascinating case. Again, with the time frame, uh, the time period, it makes it very hard to tell you uh, to tell what is true and what is fiction. We're just giving you the best evidence that we got and what we think it makes the most sense. It, it definitely does seem like his narcissism is definitely the, one of the most prominent things along with him being the pathological liar and a very, very good manipulator too, because he's able to convince these people to essentially do whatever he wants them to do. And 
unfortunately led to nine people. Who knows? It could be more than nine people, but as we as was believed, nine people perishing at his hands. Mm. So, well, Jason, I'll let you close this out. I appreciate you joining with me on this journey uh, as we look into HH Homes, and I'll just let you close this out. All right. Thank you, Hunter. And thank you for tuning in to the HH Holmes episode of Serial Time, a serial killer podcast. If you like this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As a disclaimer, no serial was harmed in the making of this episode, and we hope to see you next time. <laughs>